Hello and welcome again to another episode of Lost in Science coming at you down the radio tubes for half an hour where we talk about all things science. I'm Stu and I'm going to be talking about how the real world science is starting to seem a lot like the science from comic books. Manisha, what are you going to talk to us about? Um, this week I will be talking about a cool way that... Um, or I'll be talking about a cool way that elephants are avoiding poachers in Africa or just a study that's come out to, to show a change in their behavior. Are they emigrating? Uh, that's one way to do it. Just leave the country. <laughs> they need to get as far away from Donald Trump as possible. Yeah, I don't know how they can pass laws about poaching So they, they've elephants. sort of shelved. Well, they, they are considering the banning of importing trophies like from so ivory and stuff yeah but trophies lifting the ban they're considering lifting lifting the the ban ban. yeah so it's currently banned it was banned i think last year the year before nope not last year the year before and yeah so they're considering lifting the ban and that's sort of how i got into this story it was originally going to be an i hate trophy hunting story but i didn't think that was very scientific yeah i mean it's it's all but it's all well and good to you know lift a ban on bringing trophies in, but surely the countries who the trophies are collected from get to have some say in the it was par- It was primarily from um, Zimbabwe and Zambia. And my study or my the, st- the study that I'm discussing today is actually out of Kenya, so it might not be. It might not be as relevant. Yeah. We shall find out. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned for that. And Claire. Well, this week I'm going to be talking to herpetologist um, and all-round amazing expert in all things frogs, Dr. Jodie Raleigh, who um, will be talking to us about a new citizen science app that has just launched at the Australian Museum called Frog ID. Cool. And it's all, it's pretty much, if you can imagine, Shazam for frogs. So you go out armed with your phone and armed with the Frog ID app and um, you can record sounds frog sounds and from those frog sounds you can you can find out what species there are they so are. it matches matches you up to the frog that's matches making the you sound up to the frog that's so cool it is mm-hmm. so cool that is so cool very and cool herpetologists and i thought they were like snake people and frogs and they're frog people as well mm-hmm. learn something new every day you do indeed and you can learn something if you stay tuned to the show movies in the world at the moment seem to be about far-fetched superheroes with comic book origin stories and amazing abilities well beyond us ordinary mortals. That and people driving cars very fast. That's the other one I've noticed. That's kind of beyond us ordinary mortals, yeah, isn't suppose, it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but as we've we've mentioned before on Lost in Science, the actual science in the world is beginning to sound a lot like the pulp science fiction of the past. Mm. Uh, we've got Elon Musk. He's he's come up before, kind of a real life Tony Stark slash Hank Scorpio. 
<laughs> slash Hank Scorpio slash Bruce Wayne potentially, but yeah, yeah. doesn't seem to go out fighting crime. So mostly Lex just... Luthor, perhaps. Yeah, maybe Lex Luthor. Yeah. Uh, but he's inventing and funding research into everything from high-speed travel in Hyperloops, uh, electric cars, flights to Mars, yeah. um, anything else that he can come up with, basically. Um, and then we've also uh, talked about Craig Venter, who is uh, funded the creation of the first ever completely synthetic uh, organism. He built a bacteria from scratch. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and it actually has two extra base pairs in it, which sets it aside from all other life on Earth because it can make completely different proteins that haven't existed before, which is, does sound a bit like a, an evil super genius plan it in does. some ways. Um, and they do sound like something out of a comic book, but the scientific realities that sound like film plots don't stop there. Uh, and there's an interesting development in the world of CRISPR that fits this uh, narrative about science fiction coming to life. Now, could you explain what CRISPR is? Okay, so CRISPR is a gene editing technology that pretty much allows anyone with the right equipment to edit genes directly. So, how, how does it work? You've got to take some genes and you mix it up. How it's applied, like yeah. the editing process is actually quite um, straightforward. It's mm -hmm. just like editing anything else. But then getting the genes to do anything, I think, is where it kind of falls down. Okay. This, this is my personal understanding of it. Um, so you can edit it, and it's, you're basically using automated systems to, to do the editing for you, and then it spits out these modified genes, basically. You can, you can edit genes of a living organism? It doesn't have to be, a, a, say, an embryo or something? You you can, this is the problem, is that the, the technology for the editing's there, but then what do you do with, you know, an edited gene is just a chemical, basically. Mm -hmm. You've got a chemical, then what do you do with the chemical? Yeah. And whether that works or not, we don't really know. But it seems that, uh, you know, people have been experimenting on model organisms like uh, Arabidopsis, which is a model organism for plant genetics. Um, there's Melanogaster, which is the fruit fly mod model organism for animal genetics. Um, but some people are getting bored of this uh, experimenting on model organisms. And these people who some people have called biohackers, because they obviously don't care how dated that's going to make them sound, uh, have started experimenting on themselves. Nice. So a, a guy in a live uh, lecture injected himself with some CRISPR-modified genes and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what happened as well, a result. That's one of the, um, that's one of the, the loopholes, isn't it, in, in ethics, medical ethics things, is that, you know, it's hard to get, obviously, you know, um, approval, ethics approval to inject people with some experimental substance, but you're allowed to test it on yourself. Well, I mean... Presumably, we own our own genes. Yeah. So the ethics approval to experiment, genetic experiments on ourselves lies with us because I who else's yeah. ethics do we need to well, ask I for? It, I think it's just generally like uh, any, any drug treatment, like um, Australia's Nobel Prize winner who did the um, Helicobacter pylori uh, in the stomach ulcers. Yeah. Um, I forgot the name. Brian... No... Helicobacter pylori. He basically just drank a cup of bacteria. Um, and, and saw if he got an, an ulcer from it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And that was, yeah, that was like, because, you know, you're allowed to do that. No one's going to stop you. And I can't find his name. Um, 
Anyway, that's not important. I mean, I, I, yeah, that, I can't that, remember his name. That um, that is the basic and point, Wikipedia's though. That's not that, helping me. Um, Barry Marshall. Barry Marshall. That's who it was. Barry Marshall. But that is the point. Is is that if you do want to experiment on yourself, there's not really anything anyone can do about it. Yeah. But it, look, you know, it, it's pretty unlikely that someone is going to give themselves the abilities of a friendly neighbourhood spider. Yeah. Or. Uh, you know, there's not really the possibility of becoming a rage-fueled giant green version of themselves or anything like that. Um, and in fact, altering genes is probably pretty tricky because most of the genes that work, that are the ones that keep us alive, have been fine-tuned over millions of years. Mm. So the idea that you can just go and go, oh, I'll just give this a bit of a tweak and it'll actually work. Yeah. It's, you know, it's you're kind of gambling because if they stop working and you've injected it into yourself and it stops all of those genes working that are keeping you alive, then potentially you're not going to be alive for much longer. But potentially you could correct genetic mutations and uh, diseases. Well, that's right. That's the, that's the, that's the sort of future yeah. of this kind of technology. So if you know the gene is supposed to be, you could fix that. If, yeah, if you've, got a, if you've got a copy that's a working copy and you've got a faulty copy, you could potentially yeah. repair the faulty copy. Um, and, you know, potentially also do things like treat cancers by silencing or switching off certain genes that are the trigger for yeah. cancer tumours to appear and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, again, like a known mutation, you can target that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it is really interesting technology. But, you know, it's still probably better that it's kind of, you know, properly constructed research projects with, you know, controls and balances and checks to make sure that people are actually using it to find out useful things rather than... I don't know, trying to get rid of their acne or something. I'm not really sure what, what people are injecting themse with themselves with, but there's not really anything anyone can do about it. There's no legal uh, precedent for that sort of thing. Um, but just quickly, uh, another comic book science story I saw recently is the one about the Russian billionaire who wants to go into space. Um, he's not content with heading for Mars. Elon Musk's already said he's going to Mars. Uh, but Yuri Milner has oh, proposed... Yuri Milner has proposed a trip back to Saturn's moon Enceladus to look for signs of life. So his plan is that he, he thinks he can do it faster and cheaper than NASA and probably get back there in only a few years using you know robotic probes. He's obviously not going to send anyone because there is a chance that any crew might get hit by uh, gamma rays or cosmic rays. And we all know what happens when you get a dose of cosmic rays probably kills you but uh, mm. according to comic books you come back with superpowers but we're sending robots instead so we'll just get superpowered robots back that's that's fine i'm sure that's fine by everyone but uh, look you know as far as yuri milner's credibility i think he's got a much better chance of success than the flat earther i recently saw from the u.s who recently built his own rocket to launch himself up in the air to prove yeah. something. I'm not exactly to prove sure. That the Earth is flat. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how you can prove that by going up in a rocket. Or take a picture from high up. I don't know. Then it look round and kind of flat. I don't. I don't really know what he's doing, but uh, I'm not sure if he's if he's actually launched or if he's still just talking about it. But uh, I'm sure these other people will be much more successful in their endeavours.
we've all heard about animal poaching and poaching it's, it can actually have a quite severe and detrimental impact on wildlife populations um, already threatened or endangered populations like the African elephant often su uh, suffer from high rates of poaching um, and so there are a lot of studies out there that analyze the impacts of poaching and also look at what factors might promote or um, reduce the risk of poaching uh, to provide management strategies. One of these uh, sort of studies came out in 2015. Between 2002 and 2012, Festus Iwagi and colleagues from the University of Twente in the Netherlands and a NGO called Save the Elephants in Kenya, um, they got together and they collaborated on a project in which they tracked 60 elephants in northern Kenya. <clears throat> the researchers monitored the movement and the foraging patterns of the elephants in the Laikipa Samburu ecosystem. Um, and in 2015, they published their study in PLOS One. And in the study, they aimed to determine uh, the influence of land ownership or the use of, um, sorry, the, in 2015, they uh, published a study in PLOS One in which they aimed to determine the influence of land ownership and use on daily elephant distribution and on poaching levels. They found that elephant poaching increased over the course of their study, and it actually had a peak rate in 2012, but this was also the end of their monitoring program, so it's quite likely that it's going to be higher um, at the current date. In 2012, 70% of all recorded elephant deaths were due to poaching. The researchers found that land use type had a strong influence on the level of uh, poaching, and this had a stronger, stronger influence than the actual landowners themselves. The land use types they, that the researchers compared were private lands such as settlements and private farms, government lands such as um, national and forest reserves, and then public lands such as community pastoral areas or community conservation areas. The communal so, so which ones had the highest rate of poaching? poaching? Yeah, so the communal areas, they're actually, they're, so they're an area that's uh, managed by a number of different stakeholders, and it has the least amount of protection. And they were actually the areas where there was the highest level of poaching. On the private farms and in the ranches, um, this sort of uh, land use made up only 13% of the, the area covered, but it housed or it was home to almost half of the population of elephants there, and it had uh, the second lowest rate of poaching. The lowest rate of poaching was in the national reserves. So yeah, so this means that the majority of the poaching occurred on the non-protected communal lands. And then through fur further analysis of the movement and foraging patterns, the researchers started to see a shift in the behavior of the elephants, particularly in the females. Um, so an interesting thing about um, elephants is that females will forage and essentially live in small groups with their calves, um, whereas males tend to forage and live in more of a solitary fashion. And so um, these female groups with their calves, uh, when the researchers were tracking them, they found that the, the females were actually becoming much more active at night than during the day. And this is particularly true in these high danger areas, so in these um, communal areas where there was, a there was a lot of risk of poaching. And so they, the researchers found that females reduced their daytime activity in these high danger zones by 50% and they put this change down to poaching. They said that since the majority of the poaching occurs during the day, 
the shift to nighttime behavior um, is to avoid the poachers, even though this would put the elephants at more risk of natural predation things from things like um, hyenas and lions. Uh, so it seems that the elephants have, well, so sorry, I, the, the researchers don't actually have numbers to see if this change in behavior has reduced the levels of poaching, but they do suggest that uh, the elephants have found some sort of a short-term solution to battle against poaching. If they can avoid the poachers altogether, then um, there's a lower, there's a likelihood that there'll be a lower rate of poaching. Uh, the researchers do urge that this is just a, a short-term solution, and there's no way to know this impact will uh, what impacts this will have on the long-term survivability of the elephants without without further research. Uh, since the elephants have evolved to forage during the day, it's not really clear how this shift in um, in this response to poaching will affect their their future behaviors and their survivorship. So this, this shift in behavior may help the population, but I suppose only time will tell. At the moment, um, it just it seems as though elephant numbers are consistently dwindling each year, and a majority of the pressure is coming from poaching. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. ever heard a frog calling and wondered who that call belongs to? Well, it has just become a lot easier to find out. The Australian Museum has just launched a new citizen science app which you can download called Frog ID that helps identify frogs based on their calls and sends the information to frog biologists. And with me this week is Jodie Rowley, frog biologist at the Australian Museum and UNSW. Jodie, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jody, tell us about Frog ID. Um, what is it? So, Frog ID is a national citizen science program. It's an attempt to get everybody out there and collecting the information on Australia's amazing frogs that we need in order to conserve them. It's all based around a free app for your smartphone, so iPhones and Androids, that you can download and it will help you whenever you go out there hear frogs calling in your backyard or if you go into the bush to actually just get get your phone out, open the app and record at least 20 seconds of the frog croaking that you hear and submit that. That will get verified by experts so you'll be able to know what frogs you recorded and that will help mm. us map Australia's frogs. You say you record 20 seconds and then that gets sent to an expert. Um, so how does all that work? 
Well, it all relies on the fact that each species of frog has a different call. So the calling you hear of frogs is male frogs trying to call to attract female frogs. And each species wants to make sure they attract the right species. They don't get it wrong. So they all have quite <laughs> unique calls. So it's not all the ribbit ribbits or sort of um, uh, croak croaks that you would expect. Frogs make an amazing diversity of calls. And all 240 Australian frogs have unique calls. And so it's one of the easiest ways to identify what frogs are around you is actually by their call and not by their appearance because there's a lot of frogs that look very, very, very similar or even you know, pretty impossible to tell by appearance, but their calls are what gives them away. And I've heard it described as sort of like a Shazam for frogs. How reliable is that? Well, it's, it's actually, it's the step before the Shazam for frogs. So ultimately we hope that might be the case. But what it is at the moment is you get out there and you can actually, um, even if you don't want to go looking for frogs tonight, it's a fantastic app to download and it shows you all the information about the Frogs of Australia map, yeah. their calls, their photos. Great um, field guide. It's a, it's, a, it's a great field guide. You can actually narrow it down to the species near you so that you can just see what you're likely to expect if you go out. Ah, frogging. wonderful. Uh, so that's a really good thing that even I do whenever I go to a new place. What frogs are likely to be around here? So <laughs> have, have a bit of a look at that. And then when you go out, you record the, the frog call for, for 20 seconds or up to 60 seconds. And the next screen, you can narrow it down by whether you're at a pond or a stream, uh, whether you're in your backyard or in a bush. And that sort of even further filters down the possible frogs that could be there. So it's it will then take you to a screen that shows you the possible frog matches. So it might be a handful of frogs that are occurring in your area and that are likely breeding in that kind of habitat. So you can listen to their calls and then match it to those to the frogs that you think are calling or the frogs that you think are calling. So it doesn't you don't have to choose between 240 frogs. And if you want, you can just submit it without even having a guess. Um, but it does narrow it down to the frogs that are likely to be near you so that you can, decide, you, can, you can actually do the identification yourself. But it will be verified by an expert, a team of frog experts at the Australian Museum that are going through all the calls and verifying which species are in, in the recording. And then once it gets verified, do you get that information back? Yeah, you do. So you'll, you'll get a little, little thing in your phone and you'll get an email that tells you what frogs you've got in your recording. So hopefully if you got it wrong the first time when you had to go, you'll, you'll pretty quickly learn the local frogs of your area. That is amazing. That's like validation by experts for free. That is, <laughs> that is excellent. <laughs> it, it is. So the next step will be getting a citizen science platform up that will enable everybody to help us with the verification. But at the, at the moment, it you know, and, and all the tricky ones will always be verified by experts as well because we want to make sure, I mean, um, that you know that everything is right. That we're mapping Australia's frogs correctly, and that we get a you know for a first time a really fine scale map of, of frog distributions across Australia, and we can monitor them over time as well. So that brings me to my next question. So why is it so important to get people from all over Australia to um, to use Frog ID? Well, frogs are amongst the most threatened group of animals on the planet. We've already lost four species of frog in Australia. And there are several others that we haven't seen in decades, and so they're possibly extinct, and still more that are right on the edge of extinction. So now is a really critical time to make decisions and try and save our frogs. But one of the biggest problems we have is that we actually don't know that much about our frog populations. Australia's a really big country. There's not that many frog biologists like myself, and we can't do it all. So we need everybody, young and old, to be out there on their mobile phones and helping us 
figure out where Australia's frogs are and how they're doing so that we can make sure they stick around for future generations. So it only launched, was it last week? About a week and a half ago. Yeah, wow. Um, it's been a busy time for you then. It, it's been a really busy time. We've had an amazing response. We've got over 3,000 calls from over Australia in wow. that amount of time. But still, it's it's only a fraction of Australia and only a fraction of the frog species. So we hope as well as it starts raining in different places that are quite dry now, that people will be already have, have the app on their phone and they'll be able to get out there as soon as the frogs start calling. So that's probably a um, an important point for our listeners. When it is raining, that's when they should be getting out and recording those frog sounds. Yeah, so there's frogs often, you know, there are some frogs that will give a go to call, you know, almost all times of year. But particularly in the drier parts of Australia, they need a bit of rain usually to start calling. The best time to find frogs calling and record their calls is the first few hours after dark even though some frogs do call during the day uh, and particularly after it's rained a little bit as well. So that's the best time to get out there. And the app is a really good way to survey for frogs without having to get your feet wet, without touching frogs because they're very sensitive creatures and, and yet still get a really great idea of what frogs are around the place. In your, in your wildest dreams, what can you imagine coming out of this, this citizen science project? Well, I guess it's it's less than sort of wildest dreams. It's just hopes, and it, you know, it's quite likely that we might discover new species of frog. Um, wow! Yeah, that you know, we we discovered. You'd think we have a pretty good idea of the frogs in Australia, but we discovered three species of frog in Australia last year alone. And there are many parts of, of the country that you haven't been surveyed in the right conditions, that we don't have any records for frogs. So actually it might give us a really great um, picture of, of where Australia's undescribed, undiscovered frogs are. We can also do things like track the cane toad invasion. We could potentially pick up other frogs if they're introduced into Australia, which would be really good to get them before they take over, like the cane toad. Discover populations of endangered species that we didn't know exist. So there's there's lots of really amazing and, and you know, not two wildest dreams um, scenarios that, that might happen and, and all the information that we get will be incredibly useful to allow us to make informed conservation decisions and so, you know, to know as much information as we can about Australia's frogs so that we can uh, hopefully save them. Now, I know the, the app has just launched, but do you have a favourite moment so far using the app yourself or seeing other people use it? Uh, we've had some, actually, one of the coolest things about it is, is you get to hear sometimes the, the people that are recording the frogs and you're hearing a lot of children that are excited by the frogs they're hearing and calling. And so I think, to me, one of the coolest things is that families are getting out there, that kids are realising what frogs are in the local neighbourhood um, and hopefully appreciating frogs a little more. Uh, on the on the frog side of things, though, we've got a couple of endangered species that were really cool that, you know, calls are really rare for. And it also recently rained in Alice Springs and we got some amazing calls of burrowing frogs that only come out, you know, very rarely. Yeah. So it's very hard to plan a trip from, you know, myself if I was to study these frogs. You just can't plan a trip. You just have to be there. And it was only one night that these frogs were out and calling and thankfully people got out there with their phones and recorded the calls. So they're pretty rare, rare things to have, the recordings of these frogs and they help us understand frogs. The frogs of Australia are a lot better. Basically, this is just a call to action to absolutely everybody to get out there because we do need everyone's help. Now is kind of the critical time. Um, it's been a bit of gloom and doom on the frog front for a long time, but this is actually a really exciting opportunity to get information um, on the frogs of Australia that will really make a difference and hopefully we can turn things around for frogs. They definitely have the ability to bounce back, so we need to help them do that.
Well, Jody, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, again, they can download Frog ID for free. You don't even have to pay for it. Um, and you get your observations looked at by experts. Um, <laughs> so just head to the App Store, right? Yeah, so uh, whatever store you have for your phone. And you can also check it out at frogid.net.au. Wonderful. Thanks again, Jody. Thank you so much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. and I'm going to be talking about how the real world science is starting to seem a lot like the science from comic books. (laughs) 